Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies, I'm J.F. Martel. In case you missed it, my brother, Pierre-Yves Martel, recently released Volume 2 of Weird Studies Music from the Podcast on his Bandcamp page, which you can find simply by searching Weird Studies Bandcamp on Google. There, you can listen to or purchase the music that Pierre-Yves writes for the show. One of the pleasures of editing this podcast is choosing which of Pierre-Yves' musical cues will bridge the transitions in our conversations. In finding the right cue, I always get the sense that Pierre-Yves has somehow anticipated where we were going and preemptively composed a piece that renders the precise affect that our concepts are giving off. That sense was particularly strong in editing this episode, which is nothing if not affecting, at least to me. Duncan Barford is an author, podcaster, practicing magician, and experienced meditator who hosts the wonderful podcast Occult Experiments in the Home. Today, he joins us to discuss that point in the spiritual journey that St. John of the Cross called the Dark Night of the Soul, the moment when, in Barford's terms, it all falls away, and one is exposed to the radical alterity of the real, the weird made flesh. Duncan is one of the few true mystics I've met in my life, the kind of person whose mere gaze speaks of unspeakable experiences, even over Zoom. Ugh. What a cold shower of quotidian lameness that word, Zoom, represents, now that some major corporation has taken it for itself. He used to have whimsy, the childlike just-so-ness of any onomatopoeia. Now it's another can of content on the assembly line. At least that other corporation, Patreon, took the trouble of inventing a word instead of appropriating one that already existed. I mean, what's a Patreon? Nothing. The word's meaningless. All this to say that Digging Weird Studies isn't the only reason to visit our Patreon page and support our show. There's also the added value of knowing you're patronizing a company that had the decency not to pull another word from the symbolic firmament where words shine like stars. Thank you for considering it. And thanks, Patreon, for not being, to borrow a term from the Book of Ford, a total asshole. One, two, one, two, three, four. Cool. I think it was a bit early. That's okay. It doesn't just matter. to give us a visual ballpark and then yeah. we can refine it. Yeah. So, In truth, because of lag in Zoom, the synchronization is always drifting a little bit anyway. Yeah. Yeah. We, we Some, something I suppose you don't have to deal with since you don't do interviews. Was that a conscious choice that you decided you didn't want to do interviews or is it just like hasn't? really come up and no it was i did try doing a kind of conversational format with other people but i found when you do a podcast you kind of create a listener 
and there was just something really nice. I found this kind of quite sort of calming, intimate vibe, and um, I felt that I was always talking to somebody who I really liked and I really cared about. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, who else do you want yeah. to talk to apart from somebody like that? And and once I'd found that kind of groove, that kind of vibe, um, you know, it felt good, and I've I've tried to stay with it. Yeah, there's a an intimacy to the way that you, you know, that you create your podcast. It just feels like I just feel so close to you, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. like almost physically, like you're just whispering in my ear. And yeah. um, and I really think you nailed that. It's, it just works. It just really, really um, jibes with what you're talking about. It's almost like the topics you broach, or at least the way that you broach them require that level of intimacy and honesty and forthrightness. Mm. I just finished listening to the latest Near Enemies of Magic. And again, I was just, um, I don't know, moved by even just your introductory remarks are, are moving to me. <laughs> There's something really stirring about the way you're doing this and using the form, which I find uh, just uh, brilliant and inspiring. That's so lovely to hear. And that's exactly what I'm aiming for, I think. I mean, some people have described it as um, late night radio for the soul. Yeah, <laughs> which is exactly perfect. what I'm after, I think. Or late night of the soul radio. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good title. <laughs> I have to remember that one. Yeah. No, it's true. It's that feeling of like, I mean, the magic of radio was all, at least for me, as a kid growing up in mid-Northern Ontario, which in the 1970s and 80s, when I was living there, quite a bit more isolated then than it was now. And listening to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which has an outsized presence in the imaginative life of Canadians of my generation and older, because, you know, Canada really is, the population is strung out in a thin band across Canada, like a, a paltry and insufficient string of Christmas tree lights strung out on an excessively large tree. <laughs> And so this feeling of like a voice in the dark, like, you know, if you could visualize what Canada's population looks and feels like growing up in, in a very cold part of the world, you imagine little twinkling lights isolated in a sort of field of darkness. And listening to the radio always felt like that to me. It was like yeah. a little twinkling of light coming from the darkness mm -hmm. because I've always had difficulty sleeping and even as a kid would often spend a lot of nights just lying awake in bed listening to the radio waiting to, to fall asleep and a very strong emotional response to that and for the most part i don't feel that with podcasts right maybe it's the excessive chumminess or matiness what seems to be the consensus like that's how you do a podcast you know speak loud and fast and try and gin up a lot of excitement and that feeling of we i don't know almost mystery is just almost entirely gone from the podcasting medium i guess this is a long-winded way of saying however your podcast always gives me that feeling yeah nice when you were describing that i was feeling the coldness and the darkness kind of creeping in but 
Nice. Also, I was feeling the coziness and the warmth. Yes. Yeah. It's funny, I felt it too. And just this weekend, I was at my brother's house in Montreal and we were having, we were remembering that era, the mid 80s when, mm-hmm. when I was growing up and we were growing up and our neighbor, our neighbor was blind, but he owned and ran a, a snowplow company. He was an entrepreneur, and he, but his hobby was shortwave radio. So he was always on his ham radio talking with, I don't know, truckers or people on ships or I don't know who he was connecting with. And I just had this vivid recollection of this one evening when we were watching, I think we were watching Conan the Destroyer in the basement. My brother's, no, I was watching Mission Impossible, the TV show, the short-lived revival in the mid-80s. And I had all of my Dungeons and Dragons books out and my stepfather was watching Hockey Night in Canada upstairs. And I went out and I saw my neighbor communicating with God knows who on his shortwave radio. And it's just the cold, the coldness, the the spaciousness of that era, but also the coziness and the little pockets, the little points of light in the darkness, you know, pinging at one another in this kind of dark, uh, Cold War inflected ambiance. I don't know, the whole thing just kind of came to life for me just this weekend and just now again, talking about your podcasting aesthetic and the way that Phil framed it in Canadian terms. I just brought it all back to me. I'm just kind of immersed in that feeling right now. Yeah. And I think can I get a coziness from weird studies as well? Um, because there's just something about, you know, the dynamic the two of you have and that ability that the two of you seem to have when you come into connection with each other to really just nail something. So absolutely to really just get in there. And it's in a way as well that gives me a real sense of fellow travellers. Mm. Um, I mean, there was... One, I think it was probably the Hellier episode where um, you were talking using an analogy. I think it was like a tennis analogy of um, batting a ball onto the other right. side of a tennis court that's in darkness. Oh, yeah. And um, then the ball being batted back out of the darkness. And when you describe that, it was just these guys have been there. They <laughs> They know that feeling. They know that sense of something emerging from that otherness you know and uh there's been some wonderful episodes where the two of you have just absolutely nailed things in such a unexpected and delightful way and uh yeah i just thank you so much for saying that yeah i just love listening to you your remarks are among other things (laughs) quite quite apart from being very gratifying to hear also really pointing out something about not only, you know, listening to a broadcast, whether it's terrestrial radio or a podcast, but also just generally why people talk about art, what the point of art criticism might be, much less professionalized artistic interpretation of a sort that I get paid to do in a university setting. The sense that it's, uh, to put it, bluntly it's about feeling less lonely Mm -hmm. i mean of course it's about a lot of other things as well but there is 
a sense of which so much commentary on matters that are very, when you think about it, very internal, like an aesthetic response, response to a piece of art. It's a very internal thing. Spiritual experiences, uh, occurrences on the spiritual path, very internal. And yet we talk about them constantly. And people who are unsympathetic to that will look and say, well, like, this is a waste of time. You're doing something that's definitionally impossible. Like how a piece of music sounds to me is not going to be the same as how it sounds to you. It would be absurd to suppose otherwise. And yet there's something in the very nature of aesthetic response that makes you want to turn to the person next to you and be like, are you hearing this shit? <laughs> You know, <laughs> do you, do you seeing what I'm seeing? Um, that impulse to bang up against and, and maybe wrestle with the limitations of our own separateness. I always feel there's something big going on in art about that. The way art just effortlessly calls little communities of fellow appreciators into being. And... I feel like when we're talking about spiritual stuff, occult stuff, paranormal stuff, you know, as you point out very eloquently in your most recent episode, you can't conflate art and magic. They're not the same. But at the same time, they have some things in common. And that way that it builds strange little communities is mm. one of them, it seems to me at any rate. Mm. And there can be, I think an experience of truth um, through art. There can be that joining together where you know, you know that that quality that you're picking up on is exactly what the other person is picking up on as well. There is that joining together, I think. I think mm. so too. Yeah. And I, th I think in the hands of the two of you, you know, talking about art, I think is it's a spiritual practice in a sense because it can create those moments yeah I, I agree i think it was kant who argues at one point that the aesthetic feeling presents itself as universal it is experienced subjectively as universal therefore it elicits a kind of um evangelical feeling in us we must share it for me when uh, you were talking about keats's conflation of truth and beauty or his his wish or the urn's wish that truth and beauty become synonymous in a sense, it's that the experience of the beautiful feels like a revelation of truth, but it's just not a discursive truth or a truth that translates that you could even take away from the piece. It's just, it is its own truth. It's very strange aesthetic beauty. But it seems like spirituality or magic and art share this. It's that the only thing more important to either of these things might be the need to talk about it in a certain sense, that the need to develop these traditions, as contingent as those traditions are, they kind of almost grow on the surface of these phenomena, almost like a kind of a, a, a patina or a shell that needs to be there. Like someone will have a, an intense magical experience or mystical experience, and then next thing you know, you have a new religion, right? It, it seems to just produce uh, a tradition or a community. Precisely because, in a way, it's not possible to discuss it directly, and therefore it calls into being societies and groups. It's really weird what happens. It's like the ineffable 
elicits, requires constant speech, <laughs> like constant communication for us to try to make sense of what we all know deep down, we'll never make sense of fully with our words, at least. Yeah. And then on, on one level with that, there's always a falling away, isn't there? As soon as it's articulated, there's a falling away, a falling away. Yeah. And with traditions. So Dogen, you said, uh, no, it's a, it's a haiku. Um, it's just one of the little line from a haiku. I'll never forget. It's like, uh, or this is the entire haiku, I think. It's um, when words are spoken, the lips are cold, the autumn wind, you know, the lips uh. are cold, meaning that the language is itself already the death of, of something. I don't know. I'm feeling that darkness and cold again. I'm wanting some coziness. yeah dogan did say something maybe to the point although i think he meant something else but i've always interpreted it kind of in light of what we're talking about when you speak of it it fills your mouth Mm. it's like you try to talk about something if you experienced and maybe some an experience in meditation or some weird occult experience and you try to speak of it and just the sheer mountain of words that pile up from countless people all having the same experience, just wanting to vomit forth the words that would would requite this experience. And it fills your mouth. And the idea of words filling your mouth, I imagine like if you fill your mouth, you can't talk, right? If you like mm-hmm. try to stuff an entire grapefruit into your mouth, you're not going to be able to express yourself clearly and so like in talking there's this weird self-annulling activity of talking about art or talking about spiritual experience you speak of it it fills your mouth you Mm. get choked on your own words right right yeah but at the same time you know i have such a craving for that i have such a craving to hear that me too i mean one of the things that frustrates me about you know the occult podcast world is how how very rarely people seem to talk about their experiences. You know, I haven't. It's like, come on, guys. You know, a lot of it's about kind of cultural stuff and historical stuff. And I just want to know what people have done and what's happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, on the one hand, like you were saying, you know, the words kind of get in the way. But on the other hand, such a a craving, you know, to hear, you know, just what people are doing. And probably for some understandable reasons that people don't want to come off as being batshit insane. You know, like every t- I've talked and about a number of things that have happened to me on this show, and every single time I do, I'm like, oh, shit. Like, this is the time that finally people are going to be like, okay, the jury was out for a while, but the jury's back in. They've returned a verdict, and Phil Ford is fucking insane. Uh, and I'm convinced, like the most recent <laughs> time that happened, we were, it was in our Radical Mystery show, and I was talking about this instrument this eldritch pipe and we can get into that experience we're talking about that it's a kind of a probably fairly typical or at least not untypical experience of uh you know the dark night or whatever the we can talk about that but uh you and i were exchanging emails and we were talking about this topic that we were thinking of framing for this show which is to talk about the darker more difficult places on the spiritual path including the dark night of the soul, as St. John of the Cross called it, or the knowledges of suffering, as they're known in the Theravadan insight tradition. And you commented 
about how a story like the one that I related on the show about having a kind of visionary experience where I perceived these sort of monk-like figures holding the disassembled parts of some musical instrument, a pipe, that I was then obliged to blow into. And when I did, it made this kind of awful anti-sound. That's a good example of a story that I felt I had to tell in order to make the point that we were making. But then at the same time, also, I had this feeling of dread the whole time that we were putting the show together. Because, again, I was convinced that this is the thing that's going to convince people that I'm completely insane. And uh, and you were remarking how, yeah, I mean, it's really difficult, like in psychotherapeutic context. Like if you just said that if you gave that anecdote to the wrong psychotherapist, the wrong doctor, you could end up being diagnosed with some kind of dread psychological illness and, I don't know, involuntarily committed or some shit. And it's true. The kinds of things that we talk about when we're talking about like the difficult places in the spiritual path are sort of things that, uh, like there's DSM-5 diagnostic categories for those kinds of things. So yeah, there's probably good reason why a lot of people don't want to, you know, really get down to brass mm -hmm. tacks and talk mm -hmm. about what they've done. But the problem is that then that does perpetuate a lot of ignorance and, uh, you know, superstitious thinking about these kinds of things. I work as a psychotherapeutic counselor. And when I was doing my training, I decided to disappear off the internet. So I took down all my blogs and everything because it doesn't go down well with the therapeutic community. It, um, a lot of therapists have a very rational mindset. Therapists seen as a kind of branch of medicine. Um, it's ideally regarded as some sort of science. So yeah, I took all that stuff down. Now that I've been practicing for a few years... I felt more confident about bringing it up again. And I've even started to develop a little bit of a specialism now, which is working mm. with people who have had uh, difficult spiritual experiences, people who have experienced something anomalous um, that they're trying to integrate in some way, or maybe people who practicing magicians you know and they're going through mm. the normal stuff that people go through but they want to be able to talk about you know their occult practice without that being pathologized and for a lot of experiences like the one you talked about phil um also the one you talked about jf um the only register the only therapeutic register that people have got to put these things in is psychosis right it is that why you decided to to train as a therapist? Was it in order to change things on that front? Uh, not not specifically, but I've been surprised to discover that there's a lot of it around. You know, there's quite a few people in that kind of specialism that I talked about. Um, sometimes seeing clients, they'll they'll bring stuff up that they've never felt able to talk about to anybody. You know, it could be things like um, experiencing presences and receiving communications from them, um, having visions, uh, being able to see into other realms. You know, this stuff happens. It happens, happens all the time. We know it does. We know it's part of human experience. But in the 
mainstream culture, you know, it's just regarded as meaningless, as pathological, as diseased. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, there's a question whether human subjective experience should be regarded in terms of medicine at all. You know, whether there is anything that's necessarily diseased or pathological about something that goes on in the mind. You know, it's questionable. I agree. Yeah. But that that analogy was was made very early on in the history of the field, like the, the, the parallelism of the physical disease and mental illness, you know, which is, yeah, I mean, we could get into that whole kind of critique, but what I'm, I'm, uh, so how do you, how do you distinguish between some of these experiences, which the three of us on this show are, are comfortable discussing as though they were well, I mean, discussing for what they, to me, they clearly are, which are aspects of reality, aspects of the human experience that are not extricable from human experience as such. They're just, nor they're normal in a certain sense, even though they're extraordinary by nature. How do you parse out those experiences from what might be psychosis? Is psychosis a, a failure to integrate? Is that how one might define it? Or is... I don't know. It's just yeah. No, it's fascinating. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to. Find, I'm. I'm really. I'm having a hard time even conceptualizing what a hallucination is. Once I've let go of the Cartesian, <laughs> you know, dual substance model that I was inadvertently given by my uh, my educators growing up. Once I've given that up, then what does the word hallucination even mean? Yeah. I mean, this is where we get into interesting and controversial territory, I think. Um, yes, of course. There's hardly any research, there's hardly any data on this. We'll probably get around to talking about Daniel Ingram at some point. And uh, Daniel these days, you know, has very much started to work in that direction, encouraging scientific research and getting uh, the sorts of experiences we've talked about you know recognized by the medical mainstream as just something that happens to people mm -hmm. and there are some people who take the view that there is no difference between psychosis and spiritual experience that the two things are the same i don't go along with that at the moment um my sense is that there is a difference and um you know, tell me what you guys think of this, but when somebody, from what I've seen, this is just my personal experience, when somebody's experiencing a psychotic episode, that delusional system offers a refuge, offers some sort of safety, mm -hmm. um, because otherwise reality is intolerable. You know, that delusional system is there for a reason, and so they will buy into it. They will enter into it and they will not want to come out of it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've been pursuing a particular spiritual practice and I've run into that territory, you know, when I'm having hallucinations or receiving messages from discarnate beings, if that goes on for too long, I want it to stop. Mm. I want to get the hell out of there. I want to get back to normal. Yeah, that's right. And that's an important distinction Mm -hmm. from what I've encountered, that people who are going through some sort of spiritual experience, whether it's brought on by pursuing a particular practice or whether it's happened spontaneously, 
you often see a real urge in them just to get back to normal. It's like, I want this to stop. I want to get back to normal. So I think there is a difference. Um, yes, I agree with that. Yeah. Mm. I, I didn't want to suggest that I didn't. I think there is a stark difference that is obvious when you're facing it. But there is a kind of gray area. The, the question isn't so much, does psychosis exist to me? But how do we argue for positively for the reality of that otherness, right? Of those others, <laughs> let's call them, without without giving up on the, without falling into the trap, I would think, of just deciding that all uh, abnormal, let's call it, experience amounts to a kind of contact with another world. You know, it's like, how do you juggle those two things? And I think you've done a splendid job right there of showing us how they, how they differ, right? Yeah. And there's another side to it as well, which is, I mean, I think what we talked about so far is the more kind of... Um, fancy end of the spiritual spectrum the more spectacular end right you know when things appear when strange things happen right but there's also that other end which is you know more properly the dark night territory where things get very dark and very somber and depressive and miserable and disgusting and it, it feels like your mind is coming apart and reality is unbearable and it's sickening and it's almost like it kind of flips around because I think there's a difference there between that kind of thing and depression. Mm -hmm. So when people are experiencing clinical depression, my sense is that uh, you just can't function. You know, everything's unbearable and life comes to a stop, basically. But again, when somebody's in the dark night, when somebody's pursuing a spiritual practice, not quite the same Generally, people will continue to function. Often there'll be a kind of dark humour about it that you don't get when you're depressed. You know, you just can't go there. But there'll be a sort of dark humour. And there'll also be a sense in people that somehow what they're going through is right. You know, I need to do this. this it's, it's, it's right that I'm experiencing this. I need to go through this ordeal. Which, again, you know, you won't get in depression because it just feels so so awful right so it's almost like um whereas in psychosis if there's something spiritual going on people are wanting to get out of it in a dark night um it's almost like people want to stay in it <laughs> you, mm. know, they, you know the only way out is through there's there's that kind of um sense to it that's my feeling anyway but like i said you know there's not really any data there's not any research on this i think there is a difference yeah between the spiritual and, and, and the more sort of um, kind of disabling end of these sorts of experiences. And just to say, I'm a counsellor, you know, I, I don't diagnose, I'm not qualified to diagnose, I just sort of right. sit with people and try to help in whatever way I can, you know, of making sense of their experience with them. Right. I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this kind of stuff in public and you can feel free to tell me to mind my own business and we can just cut this little bit out. <laughs> Very unlikely, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm wondering if you have any kind of tales to tell from your own like earlier practice, like when you first started butting up against Dark Knight territory and what that was like for you. I started off with 
um, spiritual practice just by going to my local Buddhist center. And this was ages before I was interested in magic or the occult or anything like that. I was just interested in Buddhism. And I was, you know, turning up every week at the Buddhist center classes, doing mindfulness of breathing, started to get into it, started to get interested, doing more and more practice at home. And it was great. And also starting to have um, interesting types of experiences. Sometimes there'd be sort of visions of things that would happen. Um, sometimes there'd be very spacious and blissful states of mind that would arise. And I suppose the first thing I noticed was when I would talk about these experiences to the teachers, they'd tend to get shut down. So I'd, I'd go in and I'd, I'd read a little bit about um, meditation theory and I'd say, you know, I think I might have had first jhana. And, and they'd be, well, what was that like? And I'd say, well, you know, I just felt very calm and my mind kind of opened and became really spacious. And, and they'd just kind of nod and not say anything. And I was like, well, is it or not? You know, and you never get a <laughs> never get an answer. And um and then over just keep time, sitting with it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Just keep sitting with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then over time, things started to just just to feel nasty, just to feel difficult. Um, couldn't concentrate. Um, just these kind of undefined, nasty feelings of it shouldn't be like this. I ought to be getting somewhere. It just felt wrong and nasty. And then I'd go back and say to the teacher, you know, it doesn't feel right. I can't concentrate. It feels uncomfortable. And then just sit with this, just keep going, you know. Right. And in the end, it got so bad, I gave up. I just couldn't mm. stand it anymore. I just came to the conclusion, well, I must be doing this wrong. So I stopped. And um, it was only years and years later when I started to get into magic and as part of that, started to read Daniel Ingram's work that I came across, you know, where he says that's that's a sign of progress. When it starts to get difficult, that's a sign of progress. Mm. And then I could um, start again, move forwards again. So, I mean, that was my first experience. You know, it got so bad I gave up. And you wonder, like, how many people must do that mm -hmm. if they don't come across any advice that tells them that, you know, that's what you sign up for when you meditate. It is, it is not all light and bliss.
getting back to what we were talking about before and people who maybe are listening to the show, because we have a lot of people, some people who listen to the show because they're interested in the spiritual topics, some people because they're interested in artistic topics, sometimes both. You know, there's probably a decent number of people who are like, okay, in that earlier part of the conversation where you were thinking about the difference between psychosis and like a, a psycho-spiritual event, how can you tell a difference? I don't know. People might form a thought that what we're talking about are hallucinations, seeing things, visions of angels appearing or whatever. But a lot of the most striking things that happen are just like a way that your entire experience of reality feels like it just got reframed somehow or some new overtone to everything or some new implication to everything has been revealed. But there's nothing different about like what is happening in your field of vision or audition or, you know, in, in the what's coming in through the sense doors is still the same stuff that would be coming through it anyway. Uh, you know, and telling that story about this eldritch pipe, the really high octane part of that experience was not having this kind of waking dream or, or vision of monks handing me a disassembled musical instrument. It was the feeling I had on the walk home on a beautiful spring day that I was seeing everything very much as I had seen it when I walked to the Zendo that morning, but with an inexpressibly different significance or an overtone to everything. And likewise, times when I had been feeling wildly joyful and feeling that I could perceive somehow or sense the way that the universe was, um, that, uh, that love is at the center of the universe and the universe is literally fucking itself into <laughs> existence, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, it's not like I was looking around and there's squirrels humping next to me on a park bench or so, you know what I mean? Like I had a vision, a mystical vision of squirrels fucking like it was not that. It was, it was just like I said, like a sort of an implication or an overtone that enters into the picture that is nevertheless, not just a thought you're having about it. It's uh, it's, it, God and okay, so the my words are filling my mouth and choking me. Right, it's a this mood. is a perfect example of what yeah. I. It's it's a mood in the in the eldritch sense that we try to use that word on the show. It's a it's a new frame for for reality. It's yes, I know. I've experienced this. I, I know what you mean, and, that, and that's much more impactful than the content of the experience itself. Like the the feeling it leaves you in. For some reason, I'm getting this. Actually, this is a, a callback to an aesthetic experience I had the time I saw Mulholland Drive by David Lynch, but I saw it in an empty theater on a Sunday night in Toronto. And uh, because I was the only person in the theater, I had to leave through the back door afterwards because they were cleaning the, the front of the cinema. So I left and emerged into this alleyway with these gigantic um, air conditioning machines of some sort out there. And I had to make my way back to the street. And I remember with as much, if not actually with, much, much more uh, intensity. Remember the feeling the film had left me in and then being stranded out in that alleyway and having to walk home alone with that feeling. That to me was Mulholland Drive. You know, <laughs> like it's that, it, like if we, if we, if we mistake the flute that you were given by the, the pipe for the experience, we're really missing the, the mark of what it was about that whole thing, as you just said, Phil, that, that was so yeah. intense for you, which was how it reframed everything. And, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, when when I heard you tell that story, Phil, it reminded me of something. I've only experienced it a few times, and it doesn't really have any content. But it really reminded me of what you described, uh, the eldritch flute. So sometimes you're meditating and you'll run into a, a glimpse of emptiness or the divine or whatever term you want to use. And that mood will come and your reality will be transformed into the best possible thing. This is the best of the best. Reality is perfect. It's pristine. Everything's in the place where it should be. Everything is just where it is, you know, and there's that massive bliss. And then just on a couple of occasions, and I've no idea why this happened, what it was that led up to it, but the opposite arose, which was suddenly I was in the worst possible place. (laughs) I was at the furthest remove from the divine or the absolute or whatever you want to call it. I was in a place so awful, no one would ever find me there. I was separated from everything. You know, it was the complete mirror image of it. Mm. Um, and I got that same sense from from your experience, that wrongness, that utter yeah. wrongness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've only ever experienced that, say, two or three times. I don't know where it comes from or why. But it's just just like a kind of complete flip around. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that much about Tibetan Buddhism. I've never read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but in someone's secondary work on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I remember reading that as you're wandering through these bardos after death, you're shown horrific things. And at each point, you're being presented with an opportunity to say yes to it or say no to it. And at some point, you're going to say no, and then you're going to be kicked down into the eternal cycles of birth and death yet again um, <laughs> because you've mistaken what you've seen. There's some a kind of a, a hailstorm of awfulness coming at you and you cringe in terror from that. But if you could somehow manage to see that those moments of terror are actually exactly the same as those moments of bliss. Right. Then you would actually, you know, you would actually be able to get somewhere. But we never do. So we always end up back here. <laughs> it reminds me of C.S. Lewis's uh, comment about how the, the hellfire is made out of the love of God. And so the experience of hell is basically a particular experience of the divine. So by saying no to it, you're also saying no to what it could be. Mm. You kind of have to just say this weird cosmic yes to it and then dive in. It's like the way, as you were saying, Duncan, the way out is the way in. Um, you have to go through it. And uh, that's the daunting aspect of the Dark Knight, I think. It's the fact that you know you have to go through this and you know how awful, it, how much more awful it could be yet. And yet you still have to soldier on. It's difficult to think how you could ever recommend spiritual practice to anybody, isn't it? How you could ever recommend (laughs) meditation to anybody. It's a constant dilemma, isn't it? Because this is what you sign up for, you know. It's basically taking yourself apart slowly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe there's a difference there um, with trauma. I think trauma does send us to 
similar places, but in a kind of involuntary, quick, fast way where we kind of get broken apart. Mm-hmm. Whereas in spiritual practice, you know, maybe the process is largely the same, but the only difference being there's a bit more voluntary control that we can move gradually forwards, maybe take a step back if things get too much. It's a controlled demolition. Mm. Right. Mm. I mean, I've um, been on a few fire casino retreats, which is a practice where you basically just stare at a candle flame for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> we were doing about 15 hours a day of uh, candle staring. And after about seven days of this, you know, as you might imagine, you start to enter some pretty extreme states of consciousness. And um, I'd probably describe those retreats as, um, you know, a gradual journey into psychosis and out again, hopefully. You're basically taking yourself apart. So why? Why do it? Because then you get to see how things work, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's the answer i like because <laughs> you want to know how things work <laughs> there's a great line in daniel ingram's mastering the core teachings of the buddha where he quotes his old teacher bill hamilton talking about awakening or enlightenment or whatever we're calling it whatever it is and hamilton saying something like highly recommended can't tell you why yeah <laughs> Not that I am pretending to be an enlightened being, but nevertheless, I think that line could be repurposed to talk about the whole business of spiritual practice and what you just said, Duncan, about like, so you want to see how it all works, don't you? Yeah, there is something hard to put in words. Again, there is some sense in which that knowledge is more valuable than anything, than anything that could be gotten. It's very hard to say exactly why. Okay, well, what do you get out of it? I don't know. Did it make you a nicer person? Probably not, but maybe. Did it lower your blood pressure? Well, I have a medication that I take for that, you know? (laughs) I don't really need... I didn't need to be bombarded with the sounds of an eldritch flute for that. (laughs) So, yeah. Highly recommended. Can't tell you why. I kind of like that line. Yeah. It's the lure of truth, isn't it? It's just fascinating. Gotta know. Gotta see. Gotta see what's there. Yeah. Oh, just knowing that there's a corner, a dark corner. You you have to look around. At least that's it's my nature. <laughs> mm. So one thing, because we in preparation for this, we read Daniel Ingram's chapter on the dark night of the soul in his book, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, which is a, an amazing book that Phil's brought up a few times on the show, and I'm finally getting into it. I'm really happy to have this opportunity to read it. The other thing we read were a couple of chapters from St. John of the Cross, The Ascent of Mount Carmel, and I was struck by the parallels you know, mm, yeah. uh, really struck right down to, I don't, I didn't make notes of specific phrases, but I was struck by the obvious fact that what the Buddhists are doing and what the Christian mystics were doing is very much the same thing, but it's in a completely different cultural register, such that because of our 
where we are at now in the West, when we read those sources that talk about mystical experience in the West, we read them differently because of the associations that surround so many of the terms used, the Lord and the God and, and uh, Christ. And, and if, for me, reading Ingram and then St. John of the Cross was a great way to kind of clear out that patina of associative BS that even for me, as a, I'm a Christian, has uh, enveloped so many of these theological terms, let's say, from the Western tradition and allowed me to see to what extent St. John of the Cross was practicing and I think, I mean, you may agree or may not, but seems to me to, he seems to have been practicing in very much the same sort of way as they were in the East at that time, such that we might venture the belief that these practices did exist here in the West and were simply lost because of the Reformation, all kinds of things. I don't know. I just found it really striking. I found the parallels really striking. Yeah, I think so too. When I got up one morning and sat down to meditate and noticed that something was different, that there was something in my consciousness that wasn't there before, that there was a sense of something beyond perception that had always been there and always would be, that there was something that was like an object that was somehow in my mind it wasn't a thought, it wasn't a feeling, it wasn't a perception, but it was there, and it was in my mind, and it was objective, and you don't have objective things in your mind. You know, there's supposed to be subjective things in your mind. Right. Mm. And there was this thing in front of my face while I'm sitting there, and I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, well, this must be emptiness, um, because it's not conditioned by anything it's not relative to anything it's 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 just um it's beyond experience and yet i can experience it and i don't really see how that's the case but there it is i also thought in that same moment this is obviously what people call god right. obviously yeah and in that moment i ceased being an atheist um because i could see what it was that people were were talking about all that time. And yet I got there through Buddhist meditation, which is supposed to be a, an atheist religion. Hmm. And I have a friend who, he's a Buddhist and has practiced in a more kind of Buddhist framework than I have, and he had the same experience. And the conclusion he came to was, there is no God. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, because this thing is so unlike what we're conditioned to think God is, therefore it proves there isn't one. <laughs> right. So right. people can have exactly the same experience <laughs> and yet just interpret it in such wildly different ways. And I'm pretty sure it was the same experience as I had, you know, and we laugh about it and joke about it. But um, I stopped being an atheist because of Buddhism. Hmm. Interesting. That you can have the same experience and diametrically opposed interpretations or takes on it doesn't surprise me in the least, simply because of the nature of interpretation, whether 
we're talking about the interpretation of our spiritual experience or in the interpretation of a work of art. I'm just this morning putting some finishing touches on an article on interpretation that I'm getting published. So this is sort of on my mind. That's actually, in a weird way, part of the charm of interpretation, of all <laughs> the ocean of words we spill out in trying to do some justice to these experiences. That there are these complicated and occulted patterns of similarity and difference. So, like in this particular case, you and your friend had, as you say, different takes on the same kind of experience. But I would guess that at the heart of it was an experience that, regardless of how you were going to take it, the reality of the experience itself brooked no possible doubt. Mm. Right. This is something that people often comment on in mystical experience, how there's a sort of self-validating quality of it. What you were just describing as emptiness or God or, or whatever we want to call it, as something that stands outside of like, it's not just another thought that I had. It's not just one of the everyday contents of experience. It's this thing that's in my head, but somehow totally other. There's mm -hmm. something about that, that regardless of what your interpretation is, the experience itself brooks no doubt. Like, I know what happened. You know, it's this thing people say, I know what happened to me. Yeah. You know, people who encounter UFOs, you know, have encounters with aliens or whatever. You know, I don't know what to make of it, but I know what happened to me. But it's one of the tricksterish delights. They, you know, they don't call it hermeneutics for nothing. And Hermes, <laughs> the ultimate trickster god who lies at the bottom of it, is that you're going to marry that kind of self-validating experience to the infinite intellectual flexibility of human beings and our ability to make of those things a literal infinity of possibilities. Right. Some people find that very frustrating. I actually think it's absolutely freaking wonderful. It means for one thing, I will <laughs> never be without a job. I will always have something to do. I love the way you're putting it because it, it really is that, well, like, I mean, if we look at the experience you just described, Duncan, of this objective something that is there and yet unconditioned, you're open to the idea that it could be called God and your friend is like, oh, that proves that God doesn't exist. In a certain sense, the experience transcends language by definition, right? The experience mm. of the unconditioned can't then be translated into the right term. So it can't be as simple as yes, there's a God or no, there is no God. The experience is precisely what is unconditioned. Therefore, it you could look at it like this, like to the question of whether there is a God or whether there is that emptiness. Instead of saying it's either yes or no, we could go like Spinoza and say it's like yes or no are just two modes. And there's an infinite number of possible modes, but humans can only know yes or no. But <laughs> it's not even like yes, no, or maybe it's yes, no, or an infinite number of other completely different answers <laughs> that we can't even, you know, and that gives us a sense of how ineffable these experiences are and mm -hmm. how, I guess, if we're going to be discussing them like we are, and if we're going to be talking about, and we could talk about just art in that term, if we're going to talk about that which cannot be talked about, 
we must do it with this kind of open, the spirit of interpretation, this hermeneutic spirit of exploration, as opposed to this discursive um, spirit of insisting on being right or wrong about these things. They're so, they just elude us so profoundly and so absolutely that I think we, in dialogue like this, we actually get closer to them for not agreeing than we would be for if we all just agreed that it was God or it wasn't God, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because I think um, what unites, you know, people who've had this sort of experience or any sort of experience is, you know, that fellowship, that community. Mm -hmm. um, what unites us is something beyond the interpretation. You know, we can all have different interpretations. It doesn't matter. You know, they're interesting. They're lovely to share. But we know that there's something, something beyond that, you know, that we're pointing towards and we're trying to get towards. Um, I mean, St. John of the Cross himself talks about the need to go beyond understanding, doesn't he? Um, mm -hmm. In order to arrive at these sorts of insights that you have to give up trying to understand. That's part of it. Whilst you're trying to understand it, you can't, you can't process it. Yeah, and um, also in in my experience and in those sorts of experiences in general, I think something traumatic, you know, something um, deeply destabilizing. Um, you look into your mind, and there's an object, you know, where usually there's subjective things. You know, it's like looking into your mind and finding a brick or something like that. <laughs> like, Whoa. You know, what is, what is this thing that shouldn't be there? What what am I going to do with this? You know, what's going to happen now? Um, well, you know, how am I going to cope with this? Is this going to always be there? There's something traumatizing, I think, in in the nature of uh, spiritual insight and spiritual practice. It feels like you have to put yourself back together. You feel a bit like Humpty Dumpty mm -hmm. every time, and somehow you'll have to put the pieces back together. Can we draw? lines of distinction between trauma in the ordinary sense that we have of just horrible things that happen to us that we then have to get on with our lives and pick up the pieces the trauma of losing a loved one for example or the trauma of undergoing some kind of assault on the one hand and then on the other hand the trauma of undergoing this kind of dissolution of the self that seems to accompany all spiritual practices of any real heft and substance. Mm. I guess you could say that, you know, if you're engaging in prayer and meditation or magic to the extent that yourself and the boundaries that you've always accepted to yourself begin to get porous and fragile and break down a little bit, perhaps we could say that that's traumatic in the sense that you are visiting upon yourself something of the dissolution that happens involuntarily when terrible things happen to us. Uh, but that feels, even as those words are coming out of my mouth, that feels a little bit superficial. I don't really have an intelligent thing to say on this. I wonder if you do. Yeah. Again, I'm wondering if, there's, if they're the same, but just slightly different. So if we have a, a trauma like a road traffic accident, you know, some sort of terrible accident. Um, there's a sense of this can't be true. This can't be true. This isn't happening. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's that sort of characterizes the kind of trauma you get in those sort of circumstances. Whereas in these kind of sudden destabilizing spiritual insights, it's 
more kind of, oh my God, it's true. Oh my God, it's true. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that is that. Yeah. I mean, as someone who uh, has experimented a lot with psychedelics in his youth mm -hmm. uh, and you others who did as well, I know people who never recovered from psychedelic trauma from a particular experience. And um, it does feel to me like if you're going to experience the uh, arising and passing away, well, he does, Ingram does say that that phenomenon can happen to anyone at any time for any reason mm -hmm. or no reason. And uh, I myself in my 20s had a period where I was getting that spontaneously out of the blue. Uh, and it was partially meditation that got me to stabilize myself enough so I could navigate those things and get out of it. The other thing I did was actually make art, make a film about, but that's another story. The art became therapeutic as well. But it seems to me like if you're going to experience that in the context of a practice, it's precisely because you're engaged in a practice. And so you're to a certain extent, um, there's a bit of an armature there, at least an expectation that this will happen and a knowledge that a notion that you'll get through it and move on to another stage. That's what I love about mm -hmm. Ingram's book. He breaks it down. Maybe the lines are a little too clear between the different stages. As I read Ingram, I'm like, well, is it really this simple? <laughs> but he is a medical doctor and he thinks that way and he puts it down. That's the way he experiences it. And I really appreciate it because he makes it look like a roadmap and he actually calls it a map. And what a wonderful thing in this age where we just celebrate ambiguity, especially in our corner of the world where ambiguity is celebrated like some kind of like cardinal virtue to have someone just give you clear delineated steps and i think that must help one get through those but when it happens to you either because you were too gifted a meditator you went to on a, a vipassana retreat and just went too far mm -hmm. too fast that happens to people i know someone mm -hmm. that happened to mm -hmm. or because you took psychedelic drugs and that just took you to this um place you never expected to go and it went way too far or because of a traumatic event in your life or because of, I don't know, brain chemistry, circumstance. I don't know what it was. Um, but for me, it's just spontaneously having these experiences. The point is that if you're going to have these experiences, the ideal would probably to have them within the context of a stable practice, a spiritual practice, where at least they are contextualized as part of a process. Yeah, yeah. It's not really trauma, is it? If, like you're saying, there's a map, if there's an expectation. There's Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, it's, it's a complete contradiction, isn't it? But it's almost like a kind of positive trauma, you know, of mm -hmm. yeah. these sorts of experiences. Like trauma that's, um, that's creative, that's sort of an opening, you know, rather than more usual sort of trauma, which kind of shuts us down and we have to protect ourselves and make ourselves small and contract in order to survive it. More of a spiral than a circle in Tomberg's language. That's good. Yeah, because it's the reaction to the Dark Knight has to be, I mean, at least to cope with it in a somewhat skillful way, has to be expansion, it seems to me, not contraction. Um, mm. When people say, well, keep practicing, is advice. Ultimately, I think that Ingram himself also advises. He's like, okay, if you get in too deep, then stop. But if possible, keep going. Because it seems to me a lot of getting through the dark night stages is sort of just trying to remind yourself, this is a test. 
this is like, this is all a test. This is, uh, you want to shrink, but actually what you do do is you grow. You keep trying yeah. to expand gently, not pushing maybe, because it seems to me one thing about the Dark Knight is that it kicks your ass when you try to push too hard. Mm. The times when I felt like I was Dark Knighting hard, it was not through heroic exertion, but through kind of patient gentleness. And if you can't expand, then at least thinking of expansion as the direction yeah. you want to take. I don't know. I, I, I'm talking now, I find myself slipping into this language as if I actually know what I'm talking about. Um, emphasize for the folks at home that I do not. But what you just said, Duncan, did kind of remind me of that feeling that however much your experience in the Dark Knight feels contractive, that sense of like holding on to expansion is important. I'm really curious, Duncan, to hear you talk about magic. And um, I guess one question that I'd like to ask you is how you went from an interest in Buddhism to an interest in magic. So magic and mysticism and how did the two yeah. relate? Yeah. I think I do probably attract a bit of controversy for regarding magic and mysticism as being so close together because for me they really are i find it impossible to separate the two so when i was around 13 or 14 i started playing with a ouija board like a lot of kids do at that age and i had some experiences that were really quite unsettling like stuff moving around 
telepathy, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. And that showed me that paranormal things can happen. And those experiences never really went away, you know, even though I went to university, got a job, um, settled down into a career. I got to around 30 and I was still getting these nagging thoughts about, I know life isn't like this. I know, <laughs> I know strange things happen. They're possible. And I started to think maybe magic is a way that I can kind of intentionally get back to that stuff, explore it, come to terms with it. So that's what took me into magic and started to practice that stuff. I found that, yeah, it did lead into those sorts of experiences. But I think what happens with people practicing magic is you do workings and you get results. But over time, you start to wonder, what now? Mm. Why do I want this stuff? Why do I find myself asking for the same stuff over and over again? And then your attention maybe starts to turn to, well, who is it who's wanting this stuff? Um, starts mm -hmm. to turn inwards, starts to turn towards, you know, what's my nature? And then I think getting drawn into into more more mystical areas as a way of starting to answer those questions. Um, all these weird synchronicities lined up. I joined uh, a magical organization and somebody was set a task of doing a working to make contact with their holy guardian angel. And this was a chaos magical organization. Okay. So um, the idea was to do that in a kind of chaos magic style, you know, with sigils and ad hoc rituals, that kind of thing. So that was going on. And then around that time was when I started to read Daniel Ingram. So I'm looking at kind of Alistair Crowley's stuff, Liber Samek, which is his ritual for summoning the Holy Guardian Angel. And in there he talks about um, getting in touch with your angel and everything's wonderful. And then suddenly the angel retreats across the abyss and abandons you and you have to follow it over the abyss in order to achieve union. And then I'm reading Daniel Ingram where he's saying, well, we start meditating and things are really great at first. And then there's this um, ecstatic experience called the AMP. And then you crash into a dark night and everything's really, really difficult. And it takes ages and ages to get through this. But then there's this goal at the end. And I was like, hang on a minute. These two are saying the same thing. And then looking at the 10 Zen ox herding pictures and seeing the same pattern there as well. And suddenly all this stuff started to to line up and suddenly it was all seeming that magic and, and mysticism and understanding your true nature and getting awakened whatever that meant were all part of the same thing so that's yeah that's how it happened for me what you were saying duncan reminds me a little bit of something that lionel snell says in his wonderful book my years of magical thinking about how you can actually start off in magic with the most low-minded and materialistic of ends in mind. Like, I just, I want stuff and I can use magic to get it. And in the very business of pursuing those low-minded ends, end up getting somewhere higher in the sense of like leaving the trivialities behind. He writes in his six-point program here, number one, I wish to be rich, popular, and successful. Two, 
I've discovered this thing called magic that promises to make my wish come true. 3. Apparently, all I need to do to make the magic work is to perfect myself. 4. How will I know that I am sufficiently perfect? 5. Answer. When I no longer wish to be rich, popular, and successful. <laughs> 6. Oh, shit. <laughs> now, I love that because, you know, and this is a very typical of Lionel. He always triangulates, you know. he Every time you try to get him in a yes or no, he always finds a third point that allows him to get out of a philosophical clinch position. And so, clearly, the yes-no binary that's staring us in the face is magic a vehicle for spiritual practice? Yes or no? Is magic basely materialistic? Yes or no? And what Lionel does is like saying that precisely because it is base and materialistic, precisely because we can engage with it with that in mind, it's precisely because of that that it is a fit vehicle for spiritual development. At the very least, I would say that I respond to that myself, that the practice of doing magic at other points in my life when I perhaps had, I mean, I'm not going to lie, a lot of my attraction to magic was the mere fact that apparently this shit exists in some sense. You know, the good news is it's like having, it's like buying a new house and you discover there's a working nuclear reactor in the basement. Right? That's the good news. But the bad news is also, you have a working nuclear reactor in the basement. <laughs> and things can go wrong, and it can get messy, and it is precisely in, like, for example, I might decide that I need some money. You know, this is the classic example we always use, mm. money magic. Uh, one of the classic bad ideas of magic. Uh, say, I want to do a money working. Okay, so why do you need to do the money working? Uh, I need to make rent. Well, okay, so why do you need to make rent? Well, so I live in a really fucking expensive part of town. And, well, why do you live in that part of town? And through this kind of questioning, you'd be like, oh, maybe I'm like hung up on living in this particular part of town because of the status. Or maybe this girl I dated three years ago lives in this part of town and I'm having trouble letting go. Or something. I'm making this up off the top of my head. But the point is that you can start off by saying, I want something. And then simply by refining your intention, which is, of course, a basic thing you do to become a better magician, is to work on refining your intention, you develop a greater degree of insight. And precisely by developing that greater degree of insight, you might start thinking like, well, did I really need to do magical working to get the money at all? Yeah. Maybe mm. I could have, I don't know, either moved or gotten a better job, but but I didn't necessarily need magic. But then what does the magic do in that case? Well, what the magic did was it got me questioning my life choices. Well, shit, that actually sounds like that could be useful. Yeah. That could actually have some value. That was my experience at any rate. The, you know, it's like the Buddhist thing, the you know, lotus flower growing up out of the muddy water. Even if you say at the front end, magic is shit, it's dangerous, don't do it. People with deranged egos trying to make themselves feel inflated. Let's just say at the front end, it's all of those things. The very best reason to do it. <laughs> <laughs>
your mileage may vary. I mean, I don't know. Uh, that rings true to me. I mean, just uh, divination, which is, uh, I guess, um, a form of magic. Well, I don't guess it is a form of magic. Mm. I've found that just getting the question right for the I Ching is usually enough to dispense with the need of actually throwing the coins. Because <laughs> by the time I've gotten my question right, the answer is kind of obvious, I find, a lot of the times. It's like, oh, I want yeah. this. Or how do I get this? And it's like, well, why do I want this? And then the whole process of trying to get down to what the real desire is, usually the desire just kind of disappears, evaporates. And by the end, you're like, oh, well, maybe there's nothing to consult the I Ching about today, <laughs> I've found. <laughs> And I've noticed something similar, I think. I think listening to the two of you and uh, thinking about what my magical practice is these days, it's mostly concerned with trying to be less of an arsehole. That's pretty <laughs> much it. Um, and occasionally I'll get asked to do magic for other people. And uh, when we do that, if there's a group of us, most of the discussion will be about the ethics. Like, should we be even doing this? What's the way that we can do this which will have the least impact on everybody concerned? What's the what's the safest intention that we can frame that will have no splashback or or repercussions for anybody? It it kind of kind of shades off into a sort of ethics in a way, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> yeah. Which is striking. And exactly thinking that, like what's a magical intention that is wholly beneficent? A celebration. Of things, the, mm. the feeling of love and devotion to mm, things, yeah. planting flowers, which my wife is doing right now as I speak, expressing joy in nature and honoring that perhaps through a, a little ceremony. To jump to a different part of my years of magical thinking, Lionel is talking about a move away from magical culture to artistic culture, because as one of the aspects of his theory, he has this idea of the four cultures of magic, art, religion, and science. And his model is a dynamic structure that in the course of a human life, or perhaps the life of a civilization, you'll find a kind of motion from one dominant modality to another. And he's thinking like, okay, so how do you get from magic to art? And he's talking about Exactly this process of refinement of one's intentions to the point that the movement is away from getting stuff or making things happen to the celebration of what is. Yeah. Um, gratitude. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Gratitude. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And mm. which is, you know, I think one reason why people feel bad about magic or think magic is a shit path is because it seems to be all about the gratification of the self, whereas an authentic spiritual practice is about breaking up a certain solidified sense of the self. The dark night, perhaps, is all about that. And so it makes sense that, you know, emotion away from doing things to serve the self and towards doing things to serve, I don't know, the greater good or creation, saving all beings, what have you. Well, to get back to my years of magical thinking, he writes, that is to say, Lionel writes, I think this is 134, this move towards a greater celebration of life than a wish to change it, I can see in terms of a doorway into the artistic culture. I have once or twice spoken to a gathering of pagans or other people whom I would consider to be members of the magical culture, and I have then suggested that the longer people practice magic, the less magic they actually do. 
rituals become less and less spells to bring about change, and more and more a form of celebration, as in rituals to celebrate the seasons or nature. Every time I said that, I saw heads nodding, typically the older heads. <laughs> With celebration and gratitude, you're not feeding anything into the system. It's like um, you're not making any karma, might be one way of saying it. Yeah. There's nothing like magical practice to get you aware of karma. It's almost like a series of scientific lab experiments devised to show you the uh, reality. I mean, if you do a, a magic, anybody who's done a magical working where there was some kind of unexpected and unwanted blowback, mm. I've often thought like fairy tales are, they're kind of real in a way that, you know, the classic thing where you encounter a fairy or a djinn or something and they can make your wish come true and people always come to grief with that. It's like, make me a ham sandwich, right? Poof. And you have one or two monkey's paw type episodes happen to you. And if you're not a complete psychopath, you want to make sure that you don't do that again. And so, yeah, you become very aware of cause and effect and yeah, perhaps the result of that is that you focus on things where you're not trying to cause things. You're just finding a way to be with what is, which sounds very fatalistic, but... I think one of the things that maybe comes out from what we've just been talking about is it's almost like magic is a journey towards becoming more and more harmless. <laughs> and one of the things I found helpful is thinking about the ethics of spiritual practice and how that maybe differs from the ethics of the everyday world. Um, there's a guy called uh, Federico Campagna who's written a book called, uh, is it? Technic and Magic? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We're reading it for the show. Yeah. And I found him so useful because he talks about, you know, the mainstream world and magic having two slightly different ethical frameworks. So, I mean, same, I work as a therapist, you know, the, the guiding principle there is not to cause any harm, you know, to avoid causing harm. But when we're in magic or in spirituality in general, I think, it's different. It's a, there's a slight shift. We can't recommend meditation to people. We can't recommend spiritual practices to people, like we've been saying, because they have dangers, they have risks. And as Campania points out, what it seems to be about there is maximising opportunities for salvation. It's a different ethical framework. It's not about avoiding harm. It's about maximising, you know, the possibilities to, to change, to get beyond the mainstream. Why does there have to be such suffering on that path? Just one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because actually that's a question that has really haunted me. Why? Why why does this play out the way it does? Yeah. It's so hard. It's so sucky. Yeah. It reminds me of that that scene from Philip K. Dick from Vallis, I think, where Philip K. Dick's friend keeps his dead cat in the freezer so that when he goes 
to heaven after he dies, he can bring the dead cat and hold it up by the tail and say, explain this to me, to God. <laughs> like, like, why does there have to be suffering in any path? Why, do, you know, it's the oldest question. Why does there have to be a dark night? Yeah. It's quite a few years ago, I got really, really ill. Don't know what it was, because I couldn't persuade a doctor to come out and have a look at me. It was pretty pretty desperate. I was ill on the floor and pretty helpless. And um doctor seemed to think it might be pneumonia or bronchitis. But I'd never been so ill, just totally weak, couldn't move. And uh, I was stuck there for quite a few days. And I was having trouble breathing at times and probably the most ill I'd ever been. I caught some sort of infection that had gone on onto my lungs and Anyway, so as I was lying there, totally helpless, all the things that I'd developed through my meditation, you know, that sense of the divine, that contact with emptiness that I could always call on to soothe myself, you know, remind myself that things were okay, that everything was fine, everything was in its place. All of it dropped away. All of it just went. And as I lay there, all that kept going through my mind were the words, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Just over and over again. Everything, all the spiritual insight, just gone. And I think that's what happens. I think that's what happens when when we're really tested. You know, when um, maybe when we come to the end i don't know i think i think it all drops away and i think it's supposed to and it was just strange that it was it was those words i mean you know i've not come up in a in a christian culture you know most of my practice has been in the buddhist framework but those those words just kept repeating you know and thinking about how even christ experienced that that complete dropping away of everything in that moment on the cross you know and it, it, it seems to be part of the spiritual life doesn't it if you enjoyed this podcast consider subscribing to weird studies on your favorite podcasting platform you can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>